Hello and welcome to Money Talks, our new series from Slate Money. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. We are here to have conversations with awesome, amazing, brilliant people. And this week, I'm here with Marissa Meltzer. Marissa, introduce yourself. My name is Marissa Meltzer. I wrote a book called Glossy, which is about the brand Glossier, the beauty industry, girl bosses. And I'm a journalist. I write a lot for The New York Times and some other places. We are here. We're going to talk about money in the beauty industry, beauty in the money industry. We're going to talk about the weird creature that is the executive chair role. We're going to talk a lot about Emily Weiss, who's the founder of Glossier. We're going to talk about why... Paris is so attractive and romantic. <laughs> We're going to talk about Marissa's own favorite place to buy cosmetics. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so you have written a book about the beauty industry in general. And now help me pronounce this company's name. <laughs> Glossier. Glossier. It's, yeah, a little bit fake French. It's fa well, I mean, it sounds very French to me. <laughs> Is it actually a word? That's not a word in French, right? No. 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 Although when they launched in Paris, they had an ad campaign that was Liberté, Egalité, Glossier. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, this is all this. I, I'm, I'm deeply suspicious already. But anyway, so, you, so you've written about Glossier in the long tradition of beauty companies that sound European because it sounds more glamorous or something. Mm -hmm. Although it started as, as a blog called Into the Gloss. Yeah. So when they when Glossier came out of Into the Gloss, I assumed it was pronounced glossier. That was like that it was normal, yeah. it was more glossy than Into the Gloss or something. Yeah. But no, it was I don't know. It was apparently a play on the word dossier, which also, also makes no makes sense. No sense right. But <laughs> just makes you think of like, I don't know, someone um surveilling you, which is maybe apt but not what you want. So right now to, to fast forward to the end, Glossier is yet another beauty brand that you can buy at Sephora and has a vaguely French-sounding name and sells product to people who want to put product on their faces. And it kind of competes in that space with a long list of other beauty brands that you know are familiar or less familiar, depending on how much you care about such stuff it you know it, it's been around for about a decade or so and it has slot found it found itself a little niche in the market where it seems to be doing perfectly okay if that was just the story i feel like that wouldn't really be a book no it wouldn't and i would say that they aren't just a brand they are kind of like the millennial brand of all millennial brands the story of Glossier is the story of the last decade or so in culture and in business and in feminism and all the other things that we're wrestling with. And that's what the book's about. And that's what the, and that's what the book's about. So, so one of the big questions that I wanted to ask you is, like, is it still true that it's like the millennial brands. Now that the millennials are all like homeowners with families and in you know turning forty and all the rest of it, like mm -hmm. is Glossier like the beauty brand for the forty-year-old mom? Uh, I would say they are still the millennial beauty brand, maybe more towards the younger millennial demographic, and they also are really big with Gen Z and 
do really well on TikTok. So it seems like Glossier has staying power. But I guess Glossier, one of the reasons why they became famous was that they were a beauty line for people like, you know, proactive, that acne line that advertises on TV a lot. As someone who, <laughs> who never watches TV and never buys product, I'm not the right person anyway, to ask this question. Anyway, many people know what Proactive is. It's like they started out with infomercials and it was very big with teenagers. It's acne focused. So it's like once you've graduated away from just wanting to clear up your acne and before you were maybe in your late 30s and 40s and you want to maybe spend real money on trying to figure out what's going on with like your eye bags or, you know, whatever happens. There was this middle ground and Glossier figured out that, you know, they were sort of going to be like Clinique for a younger generation. Is Clinique French? Of course not. Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds French. Well, the woman, one of the founders of Clinique's, I think, wife or one of the consultants saw signs in Paris for Clinique Esthétique. And said, oh, we should call, they were calling it like some sort of, you know, like working title brand of like, it was going to be sort of the junior version of of Estee Lauder. And so in the late 60s, Clinique gave it that um, French shine and also that sort of idea of a little bit of science. Because French is glamorous, right? That's like, that's the, the great American conception of Paris is this incredibly like glamorous. <laughs> that's what my next book is about. I'm leaving for Paris on... <laughs> on Thursday, so I'll let you know. But yeah, yeah. Your, your next book is about like what is it about Paris that Americans find so attractive? So that's like the sort of background of the book. The book is about Jane Birkin, the actress and singer. Uh, and another another person who isn't French, exactly. <laughs> Although a lot of Americans are shocked that she isn't French, which is interesting to me. Great French brands are not French. Jane Birkin, Clinique, exactly. Glossier. Yeah. That's my niche. <laughs> That's Fake your French. Niche. Fake French. Yeah. All right. So we have Glossier. It turns, it, it's a blog. It has a bunch of millennial readers. It then pivots into product and it becomes part of the beauty industry. And along the way, it does that thing that hundreds of companies did over the past 10, 20 years or so, which is it became a unicorn. And the minute, the minute, <laughs> the minute you become a unicorn and your CEO slash founder is a woman, then you, you suddenly become a girl boss. And this is like the big theme of your book is like, um, what is the girl boss? And does Emily Weiss in particular encapsulate girl bossitude or is she sort of off to one edge and kind of different from the rest of them? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of lesser girl bosses whose <laughs> companies were valued at way less than a billion dollars. It's still proudly, you know, I mean, is that a Lingua Franca shirt that you're, I am, that you're I wearing? I am wearing a Lingua Franca shirt. I mean, girl boss adjacent. Okay. I I profiled the founder, Rich, Rochelle, for uh, New York Magazine once upon a time. You know, she was very in the mix. So, look, everywhere you go, there's a girl boss. But, yeah, I mean, on a more serious note... I think in that era, so we're talking about maybe five, ten years ago, there was this feeling that there were these younger female entrepreneurs that had consumer-facing kind of companies, and they were fashionable and kind of glamorous and conventionally attractive. They lived in you know New York or L.A., and they were the girl bosses. And whether or not they 
liked that title or one of them actually wrote a, dim- a book called girl Boss. well yes so there's this woman sofia amoroso who founded this company called nasty gal which was just like an online clothing company and her sort of self-help come business guy come memoir was called hashtag girl boss so she really took you know the title to the bank and everyone else had to kind of deal with being in trend stories where they were called girl bosses and you know it's it's a little bit offensive it's a diminutive like there is there is no boy boss although now all the tech founders are kind of acting like boy bosses i feel, I feel I like say. sbf sam bankman fried was a boy he's boss. a boy boss i w- i mean i would argue elon musk is a bit of a boy boss these 100 yeah yeah and so you decide to write this book about emily weiss and her company glossier and one of the things you discover as you write this book is that this woman who broke onto the scene as a blogger, and as a blogger myself, I can totally identify with this, and the the thing that you do to have a successful blog is to have a very clear and recognizable voice, and she came out and she was very honest and open, and then suddenly... She is a girl boss and entrepreneur, and she has like a cap table and a bunch of VC investors. And you try and ask her questions like, so what do you feel about this label and various other questions? And at some point, she just stops being human and just starts becoming this sort of like robotic, like business speak person. Yeah, she's a cipher. I mean, that was part of why I wanted to write a book about it, because I had followed the company since the Into the Gloss days and had interviewed her several times, most notably for a big Vanity Fair profile right after they had become unicorns. It was really anointing her. And that was one of the last things I'd worked on before pandemic lockdown. So it was very clear in my mind. And she's a strange character. You know, it. she's, there are so many female founders and women in business that I think really, I don't know, bend over backwards to try to be maybe like hyper articulate and really helpful towards press and kind of do anything you'd ask because they, you know, they need it. And they, you know, women are supposed to be friendly and accommodating whether or not they want to be. And so there was something a little bit, I wouldn't say steely exactly, but something kind of unknowable about her that she was never kind of giving me exactly what I wanted. And she was often, you know, she or her communications team were often saying no to me. And I love nothing more than people that <laughs> play hard to get and give and reject me. So I was intrigued. And she did, you know, sign on to participate in the book. So, you know, she must have been motivated on some sense. But then at the same time, talking to her could just feel like, you know, talking to chap GPT or if, I don't know. If, like she, circles. if she hadn't agreed to participate in the book, would it have been a different book? I feel like her participation didn't sort of ultimately move the needle very much. It would have been a different book. I think that part of what people liked about the book was that she was participating, but that her participation was so deeply ambivalent. And it only sort of added to the questions and mystique around the brand for, at least for fans of it. I don't know. I mean, I was going to write the book either way, which is a good way to sort of make someone talk to you. But not always. There are plenty of people that said no to me. Well, what did you learn from her in the course of writing the book? What did her participation like add to the book? Um, Well, I think part of it was 
having interviewed her over the years, I had a lot of transcripts from, you know, quotes that were unused from interviewing her over about a decade. So I was able to sort of look back and see how her language had changed in the way that she spoke about things. And also during the course of writing, reporting the book, she stepped down as CEO. Yeah, like we should mention this. Yeah. Like in in, I feel like she's reached the apotheosis of uh, the the greatest thing that you can be in capitalism. Obviously, she's incredibly rich. You don't do report this, but I'm assuming that at various way markers along uh, various rounds and stuff along the way. She sold some stock to various investors. It sounds, I mean, the estimates I have are she still owns around 20% at least. But in any case, she, she's made a lot of money. She's probably made more money than she will ever be able to spend. She has a glamorous life in California. Yeah, she's oh, living a much more yeah. glamorous life than either one of probably, us. Probably spending a bunch of time in Paris because it's so glamorous. Uh, she's kind of more of a French. Copenhagen person, <laughs> but yeah. But in any case, she she has this glamorous life. She has lots of money. She has like one or two kids. One. One kid. And best of all, she has this glorious title, which is executive chair, which is... What do you think that means? So it is wonderful to be an executive chair, and mm -hmm. it is the dumbest job in all of <laughs> capitalism because it it is a contradiction in terms, mm -hmm. right? Um, the chair means you're the chair of the board, mm -hmm. which means that you are ultimately the person to whom the CEO is accountable. Mm -hmm. Executive means that you are an executive who is actually doing work on a day-to-day -day basis for the organization. Mm -hmm. And as an executive, like all executives, you report to the CEO. Mm -hmm. So you, you're in this very awkward, weird situation of both reporting to the CEO and being the CEO's boss. Yeah, and I would say that... it. In her case, I view it as more of like an emeritus kind of position where I, I'm sure she goes to, you know, board meetings and the like, of course. But I don't get the feeling from sources or just from her, you know, the way that she's sort of talking about her life that she's very involved in the day to day any longer. Yeah, I, I feel a lot of the girl bosses, when they get kicked out, they give themselves an executive chair position for a while. But eventually it does become a little bit silly mm -hmm. and i wouldn't be surprised for the executive to qu the executive bit of that job title to quietly mm -hmm. sort of wither away and she just yeah. becomes the board chair well she also quietly left what's it called allbirds the one board she was on last spring but it is a <laughs> it is a good job to have because you know you can basically especially if you're the founder you but you can basically fire the ceo at any time and you know, come back as a white knight should you feel so inclined. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe, you know, when her kid's a bit older and she feels like she wants to get back into the, in, into, you know, Yeah, that's doing a point I made in the book. She could do a Bob Iger. She could be, you know, Lorne Michaels coming back to SNL. She could be Steve Jobs. Or, you know, what's his face coming from back, Howard yeah. Schultz at Starbucks exactly. coming back over and over again. Yeah, I mean, if she wanted to, she could do that. I don't think she will, but, you know, time will tell. Right. We have to take a break, but we'll be back after this. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 
1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. I do want to talk about beauty as Mm -hmm. an industry, because you talk a lot in this book about the beauty industry. And it's a weird word for an, it's a weird descriptor for an industry. It's like, what are you selling? We're selling beauty. Oh, beauty is a thing that you can buy on a shelf in Sephora. (laughs) What would you rather call it? Personal care? I, I, well, so I don't, I am not the person (laughs) to ask. I am, I am not the target audience for this industry, but it's a, it is an interesting word that like people have sort of alighted upon, Mm -hmm. especially for a company like Glossier, which was sort of founded on this idea that, you know, well, we're all beautiful already. So, you know, like, what why, what am I buying in that case? You know, yeah. I mean, that's part of the power and you know strange psychology, I guess, of the beauty industry is that it can encapsulate deodorant. It could be, I guess, tampons. It can also be lipstick. It can also be five hundred dollar perfume. You know, you get into some like wellness products. Like, is it is it also like Goop has a sex aid division like is it also that it can beauty can kind of be everything and then you also have this play on words sort of where it's also about literal beauty and what constitutes beauty and what it means to want to make yourself look beautiful or better or grooming as they call it for men and emily weiss famously went completely batshit when she got married First time. Yeah. Tell me about that blog post because I can't remember what that bit of the book. <laughs> it was her, what, it was called Little Wedding Black Book. It was, I believe, 2016. She had a small, like three dozen person wedding in the Bahamas. And she detailed the, you know, extreme treatments she had done, which ranged from like, I don't know, massage, lasering you know, lash extensions. It went on and on and on. At the end, she says, you know, at the at the end, I felt like an eight out of 10. She's fond of like ranking and numbers. And it became this kind of viral thing where, you know, it's like the female version of the Roman Empire. People talk about it all the time. <laughs> How know. often do you think about that blog post, Marissa? Oh, I mean, it's now it's my professional life. I'm getting paid to think about it every day, but it definitely <laughs> lived rent free in my mind, as they say, for years. And, you know, many, many, many women felt the same way because there's something really real about that of kind of losing your mind over a wedding or something and like funneling it all into how how treatments. self-aware was she when she wrote that? Well, post? that's the part that that is up for grabs. I would say medium, like medium rare, like medium to low self-awareness. Frankly, she was probably getting most of those treatments for free or nothing. And that's kind of her job as a beauty blogger. And so I think the post was probably more to get people their, you know, 
time to shine in exchange for giving her hair extensions or whatever. And But it became this kind of fascination of like, wow, this gorgeous woman who is getting married put so much effort and really felt like a B plus or something at the end of the day. Like, you know, you could write a whole thesis about the state of self-esteem and feminism and late capitalism all all there. It's all there for you. If feminism sort of succeeded in improving women's self-esteem, would that be devastating for the beauty industry? Mm, That's a good question. Yes and no. I mean, beauty has always been there, right? Like people wanted to, I don't know, rub berries on themselves. Like beauty is a is is a very human pursuit, right? Like attraction and wanting to look good. And I don't necessarily think it's about degrading yourself. Also, like toothpaste is technically a beauty product. Like, you know, I wouldn't really call that something that's purely for other people. But, you know, I think in the way that the beauty industry has been marketed in the last, you know, century more is very much about, you know, some kind of top-down approach of, like, people deciding these are the colors and these are our models and this is what we're selling people. And, you know, even if now the message is sort of more contemporary and, like, you don't need it, you know, and there's, like, a girl with freckles or a gap in her teeth to show us that you can be different and beautiful, too, it's still, like, you should use these things so you look like less of a hag or whatever, you know? It's hard for me as someone who's really not familiar with this industry to understand the degree to which Glossier was 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 particularly revolutionary. There were a couple of things it did that were uncommon, mainly, most most startlingly, the fact that it spent most of its first decade as a direct-to-consumer brand and wasn't available in Sephora. But also there was always this idea, and correct me if I'm wrong about this because I don't really know if this is true, but there was this idea that because it grew out of a blog and because there was a community there, that its products and its whole sort of gestalt was slightly more crowdsourced and instead of being like the brand that tells you what to wear it was like we're going to get together and build something that we want yeah you're correct in that i think that that was maybe a little oversold i think that they had very really savvy product developers who also knew the market and thought we need to do a great cleanser a really good sunscreen like your lips but better sort of lip tint or something, but they definitely had this free sort of audience in this very, you know, verbose community of commenters who had a lot to say about what their ideal cleanser was or, you know, whether or not they would ever use an eye cream or something like that. So that was definitely part of it. And it worked. People, people bought it. People, you know, were very excited about it. I think the thing to understand about it maybe is that in some ways, it had less to do with, you know, L'Oreal or any typical beauty brand than it had to do with something like Supreme, like these, you know, uh, streetwear brands where when Glossier came out, they only had four products and they were all kind of random. Like one was a mist, one was a balm. I remember even seeing it and thinking, you know, where is like the 12, like, 
nail polishes or something like that. And so they really sort of started this thing where you were hungry for what the next thing that they would come out with that could delight you. And and Emily Weiss always said that she wanted to be a beauty brand that people wanted to wear a sweatshirt of. And now the merch section in their stores are as big as the, you know, actual beauty products. The um, supreme business model, of course, is all based on artificial scarcity. And, you know, there's only, we're only going to make so many of these and then it's going to be sold out. And and very much based on the idea of being able to flip the items on the secondary market and make a hypothetical or actual profit on on what you buy at the store. Glossy that, does that to a certain extent, too. Glossy does that to a much, I mean, but the, much core, the core extent. of what mm-hmm. they do is you buy a thing and then you put it on your face and then it's gone. And then, it's, it's and then consumed, you buy more of it. Mm-hmm. And then you buy more of it. But they did do something which has become a much bigger deal in retail over the past, I'm going to say, 10 years. I think they were quite early to this, which is that when they moved into physical retail, the physical real world manifestation of artificial scarcity was always the line outside the Supreme store. Mm -hmm. And Supreme was famous for, you know, it would have an enormous store and it would allow two people in it just to make sure there was always a line outside because that line itself was the best ad for the store they could possibly do and glossier totally picked up on that and created a long line outside the store that was their thing i live very close by to their place on lafayette street and there was a yeah con- there was one there was on black friday i constantly saw it. a line yeah, outside yeah. that bloody store and i I'm live like, not far from that one too and yeah i'm sure there were a million ways in which if they you know, didn't want to force people to line up, they could just allow them into the store. But no, the line serves a very interesting purpose. And I feel they were, they were like, it started in Japan, and then it kind of made its way over to New York. And now it's you see it all over the place in New York. Yeah, I think so. I would I remember going to Japan in like, the year 2000. And there were lines for like, a bathing ape and those kinds of stores. And I never really seen a line out of the store in the way and then you know, Supreme and the streetwear brands. And Glossier was definitely one of the first sort of like female targeted brands that had that same kind of line culture. And I remember going to their original flagship in the middle of the summer and it was a weekend and there was a huge line and they had the uh, salespeople who weirdly they called editors that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Bloggers, that's bloggers and that's editors. Well, they were called offline editors i believe <laughs> is it's you know uh, but um anyway they came out and they were spritzing people with rose scented mists and offering up sunscreen <laughs> to make your line waiting a little more uh i don't know bearable in the heat I, but it helped but the line is is this way that even if you never stand in line and you never go into the store you pass the line and you think well they must if be doing well. All of these people are willing to stand in line, then obviously this is something worth standing in line for. And it's a great, it's 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 an amazing thing to the point at which I now see lines outside, you know, super high-end luxury brands in mm-hmm. Soho, out outside, you know, Vuitton or Hermes or someone like that. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what? Seriously, like that's not customer service. But you also see it in front of like Majori, like a D to C jewelry line too. It's <laughs> everyone has a line these days. I think part of it for Glossier, at least there was one tiny element that that made sense, and that being a D to C brand for 
beauty is like asking a lot of people. Like it's hard to buy a, you know, like a concealer or a lipstick or even know if you want to spend $60 on a perfume if you have no way of trying it. Even if you have like a really generous return policy, that's still a lot, particularly when so many of your fans are young. So I think a lot of them, when they were able to come to a city that had a flagship or a pop-up, wanted to literally be able to touch and try the products. Plus, they had these very high design stores that were meant for like maximum Instagram and TikTok engagement. So you had these, you know, human size versions of their products to pose with and all of that. Yeah. The the selfie optimized store, I feel, is like a trend which cannot, really intense. cannot die soon enough. It's really intense. Yeah. It's like the color factory version of retail. It's, you know, it's the the fake Instagram museum or whatever they are. Quick break and we'll be straight back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There was this abortive attempt to create like a sub-brand, which was more sort of colorful and more we're going to make something that you guys are going to love. Mm-hmm. and that You're talking about Glossier Play. Uh-huh. Glossier Play. There you go. You <laughs> yeah. see, the reason it failed was obviously because it didn't sound French. <laughs> well, what if I told you it spelled P-L-E with an accent? <laughs> Egu. Plie. There you go. Play. No, it, it was spelled like play. It was, you know, on the mood board were the sort of things that you might imagine, like Studio 54 glitter, those kinds of things. And instead of making it, I don't know, like a holiday collection of kind of going out makeup or just some new products, they decided to experiment with making a whole sub-brand. I think part of that is just, I don't know, maybe the sort of like, what are we going to do with all this money? Like, how are we scaling? And maybe we're this brand that's going to have all of these sub-brands. I say maybe because it was also half-baked. I mean, they also threw a lot of money at making an app that, you know, never saw the light of day and never even seemed to really have a name. I interviewed dozens of people about it and no one could really tell me what it was going to do or the name of it. So I think part of it was just, yeah, like, how are we going to scale? How do we prove that we're worth all of this money? Like, I feel like it's not rocket science. Like, it's been done a bunch of times, and they're actually doing it now under the new CEO. Like, when I was, um, when I first moved to New York in the 90s, there was a nearby store in 
the East Village called Keels. And, <laughs> oh, ever and heard we, of them? And we all loved Keels, <laughs> and it was this great little sort of like East Village secret. And yeah, then that's got, the original one. And then on they, Third Avenue. And then they got bought by was it L'Oreal? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was L'Oreal. Yeah. And then suddenly, like, and 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 then there was this sort of immediate wake in the East Village. We were all like, well, that's the end of Keels because yeah. they've been bought by some mega uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess you and should add that like, every beauty line is owned by one of, I think, about five conglomerates. I mean, it's pretty wild, which is also like, you know, are we just looking at the clock until Glossier is acquired by one of them? Emily Weiss owns, what did you say, about 20% of the company. It's not mm-hmm. really up to her. It's, she has a bunch of VCs on her cap table, right? Yeah, that's they're, why I'm, they're, I'm... They're going to want an exit. It's yeah. 10 years. It's getting on for 10 years old. That's about the time that VCs want their exit. I think that she, I think probably pre-pandemic, her idea was to IPO, which who knows if that would have ever happened. None of the beauty IPOs that have happened have done remotely well lately. So now I think, yeah, they, I mean, I think that's why they're in Sephora, for example, and trying to, you know, look as good as possible, I had a big story that they, you know, definitely pitched on themselves for Women's Wear Daily. Yeah, I think they're trying to look as good as possible for for that. But also, you know, it's a few years off. Like beauty companies were selling for wild amounts of money in maybe like 2018 or five years ago. And it's not it's not 2018 anymore, baby. As you say, there are five big beauty companies and they mm-hmm. own everything. Um a couple Do you know of what them they are? A couple of them are in, in, in serious financial um, yeah. straits. Yeah. Um, Estee Lauder, I think, being the prime, or Revlon being the prime example. Revlon, yeah. I would think Lauder would be the one that would most make sense with Glossier. But again, I don't know that they're in a place to do it. So yeah, they're, they're not doing that well. They don't have a lot of money to throw out, around for acquisitions. But they there is something timeless about them, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if Revlon were to file for bankruptcy, which is not out of the, you know, it's not, not unthinkable by any means, the brand would stay strong. The, you know, the bondholders would take over the equity and mm-hmm. the company would just continue as this great juggernaut that it is mm-hmm. because it just has so much brain space in the public imagination. Mm-hmm. Do you know the name of their like most famous long standing product? No, <laughs> but, but cherries in the snow. Cherry. Well, there you it's a, go. It's a Revlon lipstick that's been around since I don't know, like the 30s or something, 50s. But then I compare that to, you know, whatever brand was dreamt up five minutes ago by Kylie Jenner or Rihanna or someone like that, mm-hmm. and I feel like those can grow incredibly fast and they can have their 15 minutes of fame, but it's not clear how they then sort of go through that awkward adolescent phase and become the eternal brand, which is where the real money is. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's such a crowded market. In the time since Glossier launched, it's seemingly every star has their own beauty brand. Adele just filed for, I think, you know, some kind of trademark for a beauty brand forthcoming. I think maybe eyeliner or something. And you know, when Brad Pitt has a skincare line, truly everyone has one. And so, yeah, there's a lot of competition there. I think Glossier is at the like awkward phase, the awkward adolescence. And I guess it just remains to be seen if they're going to 
come out on the other side or what that's going to look like. They seem to be doing okay, but again, we're, you know. They're, they're a private company. They yeah, don't we don't know. Release yeah. their financials. Exactly. And, you know, if one day they come out and announce, you know what, this isn't working and we're just like closing down, like no one would be that surprised. Yeah. But for the time being. What time being? Before, before they the get, before they become acquired or, the, or before go they bankrupt. Be, before they become acquired or go bankrupt. Yeah, they, they, they are out there. Um, before the inevitable. Do you, what proportion of your um, personal beauty budget gets spent on Glossier products? Oh, gosh. I mean, because it's been so much of my professional life, it's hard for me to look at some of them and not just be reminded of my <laughs> job. I I tend to go more hard in like the European pharmacy duty-free situation, like killing time at you know, Heathrow or something like that. Or I, yeah. Oh, so, so Glossier hasn't made it to Heathrow duty free yet. Not yet. That's the brass ring right there. If you're sold at Heathrow duty free. Yeah. I mean, they might, I don't, are there, I mean, they were launching th in this Sephora was coming to the UK and they're there anyway, who knows, but when they get to Heathrow duty free, I, yeah, that's where I'm like supermarket sweeping my beauty. <laughs> things all that good european sunscreen and stuff like that i i mean i'm not wearing any makeup right now i'm not a big in some ways i'm a weird person to be writing about this because i own plenty of makeup but i don't i don't wear a lot of it i i have a skincare routine but it's pretty simple but the whole world fascinates me i guess i'm the equivalent of like tony goodman the like vogue fashion editor who famously just wears like a black turtleneck and white jeans every day Marissa Meltzer, thanks so much for coming on the show. I have learned a ton, both from your book and from this here conversation. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to Jared Downing for producing. And we will be back on Saturday with a regular slate money. <laughs> <laughs> 